All right, brothers and sisters, if you'll come in and take your seats, we'll go ahead and get started. Our study this morning continues in our lessons in hymns, and we're continuing in our our series of the hymns of the Christian faith. And our hymn this morning is Our God, Our Help in Ages Past. You can find it in page 30 in your green hymnals. You can go ahead and turn there because we'll sing it at the end, and we'll be looking at uh, the verses as we go through. But before we dive in, please pray with me. Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you have been our help in ages past. You have been the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. You have been our salvation. And you have provided a way for us to come into your presence. And as we prepare for worship on this Sunday morning, we ask that my words would encourage the people here. We pray that we would do all things in the glory of your name and that we would hold nothing back for ourselves. Father, we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, please bear with me um, as I as I kind of stumble through this lesson, getting over a little bit of a cold, and uh, there were many fireworks last night, so sleep was tenuous. Um, but let's, uh, let's begin with a question. Let's begin with the question of why, why do we sing hymns? What are we doing uh, when we're singing in worship? Well, we sing hymns as a means of offering praise to God. We're offering up our worship in beautiful lyrics and poetry, in music, and they're a way of taking truth and putting them into music to remind ourselves. There's a way to be beautiful in our worship. And we can be moved and touched by beautiful lyrics and uh, wonderful music. And if we understand the meaning behind that poetry, then our worship is all the more rich. But we have to ask, what are we doing? What are we really doing when we sing? Now, we can be moved by uh, incredible music. That is, our hearts are, are touched by lyrics. We can be made to feel happy, sad, triumphant, even with a whole other host of emotions. But if you're like myself, then perhaps you become a little uh, cynical and people just burst out into song and they haven't really earned the right to do so. If you're not invested, uh, we just don't like bad performances. We don't like when we can sense the fakeness and it's just being put on. Uh, We have to be persuaded. And it's the same thing when we come to worship the Lord and when we sing. The Lord knows our hearts. The Lord can look into our inner thoughts. And so we need to be all the more guarded about our hearts and when we sing because the Lord knows our inner thoughts. But the real purpose of song is to express the emotion in our soul. And that's why we don't like fakeness because the emotion is not there in a fake performance or an ungenuine performance. <clears throat> and if we are to be singing to the, to the Lord of the universe, if we are to be singing to God, then we ought to be singing from our hearts and hearts that are genuinely touched. Now, think with me about the first poetry and the first uh, song lyrics uh, in the Bible. God, when he first created man, he put him in the garden, and he made Adam look at all the animals that he had made, and he brought them all before him to name them. And God is making Adam see that there are no helpers suitable for him. And so he makes him see his dependence upon God for a helper. And then God brings the woman to Adam, and Adam says this, At last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And these are the words of Adam's soul. He's expressing this out of the overflow of his gratitude to God for his helper. He is so relieved and thankful to God for finally providing him 
one suitable for himself. And his soul has found his soulmate. And so he has moved to sing. He's moved to write verses. He's moved from the overflow of his heart to praise God. Now, I had a conversation uh, last week with an elder here in our church, and he just mentioned in passing that uh, here in the West, we often have a fascination with being cool, with being disinterested and uh, disaffected, being emotionless. And apathy has become the prized emotion. And that's certainly true among uh, the men uh, in the West. We want to be detached, and that's prized. But this reminds me of a story from the magician's nephew, uh, from C.S. Lewis uh, himself, as it were. Aslan, uh, the great lion and creator of Narnia, has just created all things, and all things are new and fresh. And in the adventures of Diggory, uh, who is the magician's nephew, he brings along his Uncle Andrew, uh, the, the crafty magician, and uh, along with uh, uh, two children, a cabbie and his, a horse and a witch. And the animals uh, are talking animals because this is Narnia and this is fantasy. But Uncle Andrew can't understand what the animals are saying. He can't understand the, the wonder and the miracle that's right in front of him because he's too committed to his logic. He's too rational. He's too cool to be taken in by this obvious ruse. And Polly, one of the children, asks Aslan to do something for Uncle Andrew, to say something to him, to help him understand, to make him see what's really going on. But Aslan says, Uncle Andrew's too committed to his logic. He's too rational to see the miracle of creation right in front of him. And of course, this is all in story, but Aslan says something uh, to this effect. O son of Adam, how often you protect yourself from all that might do you good. You see, the point is, when we are too prideful and too committed to our coolness to try to understand, we're robbing ourselves of things that would otherwise draw us near to God. When we are too afraid to be moved in our emotions, when we're too afraid by what other people might think of us when we're singing, when we are hurting ourselves more than if we were hitting the wrong singing note and we uh, get a sideways glance from someone. But let's think of an example of some singing of from right emotions uh, from another uh, Bible passage. The people of God had been oppressed in Egypt for 430 years, and they'd been made to be slaves to work for the pagan tyrant Pharaoh. And their children are slaughtered, and they are sorely oppressed, so much so that they cry out to the Lord. And then God sends them Moses. And through ten mighty plagues which destroy every idol in Egypt, and it is a polemic against every one of their false gods, God brings Israel out of Egypt. With a mighty hand, he delivers them. But he's not done humiliating the oppressors of his people, and he allows Pharaoh, in his pride, to gather all of his force and to come after the children of Israel to destroy them. And once again, the people cry out to God. They cry out for deliverance, and they complain against Moses. And then the the God of the host splits the Red Sea, and the children of Israel go through on dry land. Through the sea on dry land, and he performs a mighty miracle. But Pharaoh and his army are devastated by the Lord's hand. They're washed away, swept away in the waters of judgment. And the enemies of Israel are totally vanquished, and their freedom to worship God is now won. Now, we do not often get to speak well of Israel. They are known for for their idolatry, primarily. They're known for their grumbling, for being a stiff-necked people who are resistant 
the Lord's mercies. But here, we can actually see that they do the right response. On the other side of the Red Sea, having been delivered, and if anyone knew the cruelty of the Egyptian, it was the Israelites. They had been delivered, and even Israel knows that praising the Lord in song is the right response. And so out of the emotion of their hearts, out of the overflow of their gratitude, they sing to the Lord. And you can uh, see their hymn of praise in Exodus 15. And just verse 2 of that, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. God has just delivered Israel from certain death, and so they praise And so the important thing is this as we come into our hymn today. The theme of song is that we want to sing to the Lord because of what He has done for us. Because of His mighty works for us in the past, we sing. Now, there are many connections we can make between uh, the exodus of Israel in the Old Testament and the redemption of God's people, being saved from the oppression of sin and captivity. But the main thing is that we we want to see is that we remember the good things that the Lord has done for us. And by remembering, we stir our hearts up in order that we might sing from the right emotions. And that's really what our hymn does this morning. So our hymn this morning was written by Isaac Watts. Now, Isaac Watts is a writer of hymns that is to be remembered for many generations. He's a very prolific hymn writer. And then what he's trying to do in this hymn is do the same thing that Israel did, is to stir us up to sing to the Lord with cheerful hearts by remembering what the Lord has done. We are looking backwards on what the Lord has done in our lives so that our emotions might be moved to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. So my dad last year taught a lesson from Isaac Watts, and he taught a famous hymn, Joy to the World, which was written by the same man. Pastor David has taught on Isaac Watts, and we just really cannot do hymn lessons on Uh, on Christian hymns without mentioning Isaac Watts. Uh, He's said to be the godfather of English hymnody. That's just because he wrote so many. There are, he's credited with about 750 hymns that we have, but he really probably wrote closer uh, to 850. Just some were not published or finished. He just didn't get around to it. Uh, But in writing 750, we can can pardon him that. Uh, To give you perspective, though, to write this many hymns in the time span that we think he did, so he finished what would have been college, and then before starting his professional career in tutoring, he wrote the majority of his hymns in about a three-year stint, and that's a little bit more than one hymn every two days. And these are brilliant, genius hymns. These are a few notable hymns uh, that, we, that we even sing most of these today. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun, which is based on Psalm 72. The sim that we're doing today on Psalm 90, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past. When I survey the wondrous cross, alas, and did my Savior bleed, how sweet and awful is the place. This is the day that the Lord hath made. I sing the mighty power of God and joy to the world. And these are just some of those better known ones. Now, Watts was an Englishman, and he was born in 1674 under the reign of Charles II. And being an Englishman, we would expect him to be uh, an Anglican, but he was rather uh, a nonconformist. And all that means is he was a Protestant in England who was anything other than Anglican. Now, he was certainly uh, a Protestant who believed in faith alone, in Christ alone, 
uh, for salvation. But because he was a nonconformist, he was not allowed to go to Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, he had to go to an independent study. However, he comes from a covenantal family. His father was imprisoned twice for his convictions as a nonconformist. So he comes from a family who backs their convictions to the hilt. However, he did uh, work to help train other men in the pastorate, uh, teaching in churches and he preaching as much as his health would allow him. And he's known for his ecumenicalism. That is, he's known for his kindness to Christians of all denominations, something we could all strive to be. He's known for his graciousness. He's also, in addition to writing hymns, he wrote many other wonderful tracts on logic, on prayer. And the most important thing I want us to, to remember from Watts' life is that he was a pastor. He pastored for many years in a church in London, and this pastoral care is reflected in his hymns and what he cared about. He understood that life was hard, and the trials of life needed to be combated with the truths of the gospel. And so our hymn today is a great uh, example of pastoral understanding. Now on to the hymn, finally. But first, a tad bit of history. Now, in England, there was a crisis of religion. There was a period where uh, the king was beheaded in um, the early 1600s. There was a stint where there was no king, and the king was brought back. Now, the king's son in uh, 1685 was Catholic. But he only ruled for three years, and then he was deposed in a glorious revolution. It's glorious because uh, no one died, but it was uh, also glorious because they brought in Protestants. Hip, hip, hooray. But the Protestants only stayed in power for a few years. William and Mary came over from the Netherlands, and then their, um, their successor was Queen Anne. And she ruled uh, from 1702 to 1714. 1714 is when our hymn was written. And in 1714, she just dies. And <clears throat> there was a Catholic to take her place. And so suddenly the freedom to worship God uh, was not secure. The freedom to worship God according to the consciences of the Protestants no longer seemed like a sure thing. And so a hymn written by an Englishman, an English speaker, during this time of religious uncertainty is very important because it calls on our God, who is a help of ages past, and it cheered the souls of many uh, Protestants by reminding them of who God is, that he would be their help in the years to come. And so this particular hymn was tied to national spirituality. It was later used in to consecrate the tomb. Oops. Sorry about that. It was later used to consecrate the tomb of the unknown soldier at Westminster Abbey after the end of World War I in 1920. It was used at Winston Churchill's funeral in 1965. It was used in Princess Diana's funeral as well. Uh, certainly a hymn that was tied to uh, the nation. But the tune is uh, the tune is called St. Anne's, and it was written by William Croft, and it was an adapted uh, from uh, J.S. Bach's Fugue in E major of a similar title. Now, there is a lot of manifestations of the tune as, tune as we go through history, but the important thing is we can remember that it's a simple tune. It's a tune that is to carry forward conviction. And it's important to have a simple tune for a hymn like this, because if you're going to sing it in a large congregation, you want something that everyone can follow along with. But simple does not necessarily mean boring. For the movie buffs out there, Christopher Nolan's Batman track was written off of just two notes, and it's a very powerful uh, score. 
But there's a triumphant energy to this, uh, to this hymn. People compare it to Gregorian chants in the way that it is sort of a masculine undertone that just builds in its conviction as it goes through the scale. And when you sing it, you get to sing this one from your gut. You get to belt this one out because it's triumphant. It's a marching song. As we march through the years and God marches with us, we sing this song as we go. But unlike the Gregorian chants, has a sort of rhythmic moving backwards to go forwards. In our God, our help in ages past, it moves forward, right? We're building in momentum, and we respond emotionally. We're building in conviction, and we're built up in the words that we're saying. And the words that we're saying are propositional truths. We're saying things about God that we believe and we hold to be true, and which leads us to the content. And the content is largely derived from reflecting on Psalm 90. Now, Psalm 90, uh, just a few comments on that, is the first book of book four of the Psalms. And there are five, the book of Psalms is divided into five books. And we have a movement from humiliation to exaltation, from lamentation to praise. Book three is largely taken up with humiliation, with the darkness of our life on earth. But book four moves to the heavenly kingdom, to praise and to exaltation. So our hymn, excuse me, our psalm, which leads to our hymn, our psalm is taking up with the transition from lamentation to praise. And what better way of starting off a book about praising God than recounting who God is? No, by the way, this is the, this is the oldest psalm in the Psalter. This is a psalm written by Moses. So Psalm 90, and you can turn there if you have your Bibles open, and I will ask uh, Dr. Turner to read the first six verses for us so that we can get an idea of what Isaac Watts is drawing on for our him. Thank you, sir. Now, let me just point out a few uh, themes from this psalm, which will help us in understanding how Watts wrote the hymn that he did. In just the first few verses, we see that God is the God of generations. He's an everlasting God. He does not have a beginning. He's eternal and unchangeable in his being. Man, on the other hand, is called transitory. He's called frail. He's called the opposite. He's called dust. And that's all. We get one comment on man, and then we turn in the next verse to the greatness of the Lord in the next line. You can see it there. Thus, the three themes that I would like us to keep in the back of our minds as we go forward into the line-by-line understanding of our hymn is that the Lord is eternal. And there's an idea of time. The Lord is eternal over time. And then there's a transitoriness of man. Man is not eternal. Man is not God. Man is frail. It must be protected through the waves of time. So we can look at the individual verses in our hymn and see how Watts is taking these themes and putting them before us, putting them into music so that we can see the greatness of our God. 
All right. One quick comment before we move on to this. There are a lot of other themes that we could look at in Psalm 90. But we're just taking a handful of truths that we can hold on to for all time, truths that are revealed to us and to our children forever. And Pastor Cliff would use this analogy of a diamond. We would take it, we would look at it from one angle, and then we would turn it. And that's really what Watts is doing with just these three themes. He's taking it and he's turning it six times in six different verses to give us a six-fold appreciation and love for who God is. So let's dive into our verse-by-verse breakdown. Now, verse 1 begins this way. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Now, let's just go through this and quickly try to pick out what are the truths that we see about God contained here. Well, first, God is our God. He is covenanted himself to us. He belongs to us and we to him. There is loyalty there. We possess him and he possesses us. He is our God. Also, he is God. He is creator and there is no other. He is to be worshipped. And we are the creature. He is our help. He is the one who is on our side. He is for us. And therefore, none can be against us. He is mighty to save. He has the ability to save his people. He has proven himself faithful in the past. He has been our help in the past, and therefore, he is our hope in the future. He's reliable. God is eternal. He is unchanging. Because we say we will, he will help us in the future just because he has helped us in the past. We're relying on the unchangingness of God, even if we change. He is our protection. He's our protection in life. And he's our goal. You'll notice that in the in the end. He's, the, he's the, the thing that we are pursuing after in our life, through this life and into the next. He is our, our, our final destination, that we would be eternally walking with God. And finally, he's our comfort. You notice the last word of this first verse is that he's our home. We're never satisfied until we are with God. Now, all these things are just sort of truths that are hanging uh, right on the, on the, the words within the hymn. We haven't even touched on the things that are underneath it, that God would love us. We haven't even touched on that. But this is a major thing that has to support all of the other uh, lists that we just went through. But the catechism question uh, about God, which uh, says, here we go, that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, uh, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Well, in the first verse, we've already touched on at least three of the four things that we are supposed to know about God. We've already touched on God being infinite. We've touched on him being eternal and unchangeable. So we have a rich theology of God even in our first verse. And don't we just love the imagery of him being our, our, stormy bla- uh, our shelter in the stormy blast? This is just good writing. Uh, but trucking right along in verse 2, <clears throat> Under the shadow of your throne your saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is your arm alone, and our defense is sure. So we start with the imagery of the throne of God. And as with the imagery of the throne, we are brought to understand that God is the one who rules. And God is greater than we are, and we are in submission to the rule of the Lord. But while the rule of God and the throne of God is a source of distress for Satan and for his uh, minions, There is shade and comfort under the throne for the saints. It's a shadow. 
And do we remember in the book of Exodus, the people are moving through the wilderness uh, in their, as they're going to Mount Sinai, and what accompanies them as they move? What forms does the Lord God take as he's leading them through? A f- yeah, a, cloud, a, a, a pillar of fire and a cloud. Absolutely. So the blessing of the Lord is signified by the presence of a cloud, by shade. And to a desert people, this is wonderful. I mean, you don't, you don't want to be burning up in the desert. The presence of the Lord with a shade is something that's very tangibly a comfort. Uh, and think about Psalm 121. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand, so that the sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. And the prophets know this. And let's think about the prophet Jonah. After declaring destruction on Nineveh, Jonah just assumes that the Lord will destroy them anyway. So he goes up on a desert hill far away to watch the destruction that he assumes is coming. But the people of Nineveh, having repented, the Lord relents from the disaster he has uh, declared upon them. And Jonah is very angry. And he's out in the desert and he's expecting fire and brimstone and he's waiting so long that he is becoming scorched by the heat of the sun and the wind. But his discomfort is eased when the Lord causes a plant to grow up over him and to shade him. And what does Jonah do? He rejoices over the plant. He rejoices over the shade because he rightly recognizes that the shade is a sign of God's presence. But then the plant is withered and eaten by a worm. But you see, the idea of the throne of God is to be protection. When we are under the throne of God, we are protected. When we are out from the boundaries of the throne of God, we are burnt. <clears throat> and so the saints are those who are not only protected by the throne of God, they are those who have a sufficient and secure arm of the Lord. And again, this is just rich imagery. But verse 3, just plowing right through, uh, Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting you are God to endless years the same. Now this should remind us immediately of Psalm 90, because this is really just a rephrasing of Psalm 90, verse 2. There we go. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting you are God. So when we're focusing on the eternal nature of God, we're focusing on why we should be worshiping God. Why do we come before God and bow down? It's because He is God of all time. And it's less about, this, this, this particular verse in the hymn is less about us, less about things about us, and more about who God is. And we're trying to, remember, the point of this hymn is trying to stir up our emotions to worship God rightly, in spirit and in truth. And so we're singing things about God to affect us. And what more to affect us than that in this transitory world where time is, we're about to talk in a minute, a rolling stream. We're singing about the God who does not change through time. And there's less to about, I have less about this verse because I want us to take verse 3 with verse 4 as the heart of the hymn, which verse 4 is very much about God as well and less about us. Verse 4 is, A thousand ages in your sight are like an evening gone, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. Again, we're treated to the shortness of history before the Lord. Because God created time, and God is the God of time, He exists both in and out of time. And this should just make our brains hurt. We don't understand how this works, but we know that God is the God 
of all time. But there are, there are two particular things uh, here. What, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for the one singing? We're saying something about God, but what does this mean for us? Well, in preaching class, my professor said something that I hope will stick with me for a long time. You see, when we come to the Bible, we often want to see ourselves in the Bible. We come looking for uh, images of ourselves and biblical characters. We want to see what the Bible has to say to me. But my professor said, and this is the important thing to remember, not all Scripture is about us, but all Scripture is for us. See, much of Scripture is taking up with revealing who God is. Right? Scripture is about who God is and what duty God requires of us. So when we come to things like this, we are to have a better understanding of who we serve. This verse is about the God of time. He is over time, and our time is in his hands. And this should lead us to a sense of wonder. And in life, this should be a truth that is a hand down to us in our times of trouble. We should remember that God is above our trouble. God is the one who is mighty to save because he is outside of our trouble. He's not affected by time. He's the one who does not slumber or sleep. And this sense of wonder should affect us, should give us comfort. But moving right along through, uh, to verse 5, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Do you ever feel like time is flying away from you? It's already 2023, and I just got used to writing 2022 on everything. But something this hymn does for us is it captures well our sense of time. I married my wife five months ago, and it seems like yesterday. Some of you married your spouses many years ago, and you have adult children. Some of you have grandchildren, and yet your wedding day seems like yesterday. You ever feel like time has gotten away from you? <clears throat> there are just not enough hours in the day. And yet, on the other hand, time for us can seem very slow. The minutes can just tick by. And there are times when every second is just pain and agony. We truly need a God who is outside of time if we are to be comforted. If we are to have faith that he is able to rescue us, then we need a God who is unchanging through all of time. Because we change. And time really is an ever-rolling stream. It has its ups, its downs, and we need something that we can hold on to through the storm. All right, verse 6. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, still be our guard while troubles last in our eternal home. As we close out this hymn, as we come to the last verse, there's something of a summary, something of a prayer. We return to the theme that God is the mighty one of the covenant. He is our help. He has been our help and he will be our help in the future. And we end with this prayer. Now let's see the argument here. And you've heard Pastor David talk to us about making an argument in prayer. When we come before the Lord, we bring evidence. We ask that he would do things because of reasons. And notice that the wicked do this too. Notice in Matthew 7, the wicked come before the Lord and they make an argument. Not everyone, who, this is uh, Matthew 7, uh, verses uh, 21 and following. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name 
and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, the wicked base their claims upon the Lord. They say, you are bound to us, Lord, because we have done things for you. They're making their case to the Lord based upon their works, and they're praying to the Lord based upon what they have done. And the Lord says, depart from me. I never knew you. But the righteous, on the other hand, they make a case to the Lord, but they make a case based on the evidence of who God is. We come before the Lord and we pray to the Lord because He is our God. We come to the Lord because He has helped us, not because we have helped ourselves. And if you want a great example for this, think about Exodus 33 and the incident of the golden calf. The people have just rebelled against the Lord after having been saved and after having praised God from the overflow of their hearts, they reject God and worship a golden calf that they've made for themselves. And the Lord threatens to destroy them, and rightly so. But Moses pleads to the Lord. He intercedes for them. And he asks that the Lord would not destroy Israel, not because Israel is good, not because they have done anything, not because there is any good to be found in them, but because God is good, because God is merciful, and God has saved Israel. The name of the Lord is at stake. So Moses makes his plea to the Lord. He prays, and he brings his argument before the Lord based upon the character the Lord. And this is what Watts is really trying to get us to do in this last verse. He's trying to get us to plead before the Lord based upon who God is to us. We call upon God because He has been our help in ages past, because He has covenanted Himself with us to guard us against trouble. Now, I would like to take a second to, to justify why we sing hymns. Why would we sing this hymn that is based on reflections of Psalm 90? Why wouldn't we just sing Psalm 90? Why not exclusively just sing Psalm 90? After all, Isaac Watts is not carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's not writing Scripture. We don't believe that he's writing Scripture. We don't believe he's writing with the same authority that Psalm 90 is has. So why would we not just sing the real thing? Well, here at Grace, your pastor and your elders... Uh, have decided that we do sing Scripture. And even this morning, you'll see in our bulletin that we will sing a psalm. And we in no way think that singing psalms is a bad thing. But we also sing hymns to help remind us of spiritual truths in the Christian life. And we get this principle from the psalms themselves. Psalm 90 is the oldest psalm, and there are many psalms in the Psalter that span all the way from Moses to the exile. Psalms are written over a long period of time, and they're written as the Lord walks with his people. There are particular truths about God in all of them that are true for all of time because God does not change, but we do change. And our walk with the Lord does change. Our walk with the Lord this year and 2023 is not the same as last year because the Lord is at work within us. My testimony is not your testimony. The Lord has done mighty works in your life that he's not done in someone else's life. The Lord works in our lives particularly and he works in mighty deeds for us. And so there's also an argument that it would be really hard to take the literal Hebrew translation and put it into words that we could remember. I would rather sing a hymn that I could understand uh, that is a paraphrase of the psalm than Hebrew, which I could not understand. It's like taking a square peg and fitting it into a round hole. But the thing about the psalms that we, we do sing the psalms, but we also sing hymns, is that 
the nature of the Psalms is forward-looking. The Psalms are our expectation. They're looking forward to Christ. But we're on the other side of the cross. We're looking backwards. And so it would be weird if we, the church, on this side of redemptive history, didn't sing about Christ in our, in our songs. We need to sing about the fulfilled Messiah, how Christ fulfills the Psalms, how Christ is our yes and amen. If we never mention the redemption of the cross and the resurrection, then there would be something missing in our worship. The Psalms just have the hope of Christ, but we have the reality. Redemption is secured for us. And even the Psalms themselves would charge us to sing a new song to the Lord. Think about Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm has worked salvation in Him. So we don't just sing Psalm 90. We sing more about Psalm 90. We take truths out of them. And we reflect upon them deeply. The Psalms themselves would even encourage us to do so. And so as we come into a new year, we come with hearts that should be grateful for what the Lord has done. And what has changed from this year to the last? Well, God has not changed. And we sing about that. But we have changed. Our relationship with God is closer because we walk with the Lord day by day. We know the character of God a bit more. We understand the Lord is long-suffering a bit deeper because he's been long-suffering with us this past year. And the song we sing is new because our hearts are renewed under the shadow of his throne. Now remember, we started this lesson by considering we do not like fake performances. We want genuineness in our acting. Well, how much more so does the God of the universe want genuineness in our worship, seek genuineness in our singing. This means as we sing the words, we reflect more deeply on what the Lord has done for us. We reflect what it means that God has been our help this past year. So when we sing a song, we are singing God's faithfulness to us, and we are building up our confidence that he will be faithful to us in the future. Now, just one more comment before we sing. I hope to leave you with this encouragement. Remember that we also said that we sing from the overflow of our hearts. But what happens when you come, maybe this Sunday morning even, and you just roll in because you're tired from the week? Maybe the week has been really hard. Maybe you have just staggered in a spiritual wreck. Perhaps you have felt like I have that the overflow of your heart is not very much. Well, the best thing that you and I can do for our souls is to remind ourselves the mighty works that the Lord has done for us because they reveal to us who the Lord is. When we are coming to meet with God, we're coming to meet with a person. And so we remind ourselves of who that person is by what they do to us and what they have said to us. So when we come now and we're, let's, uh, let's sing uh, this hymn, which is hymn 30, uh, we're singing our God, our help in ages past, because he has been our help in ages past, and because he is our hope this morning and for the rest of the year.
Shri 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 Shri